show got the blues this morning, baby. Yeah, and I'm here to tell you about it. So you might as well pick up on it. Yeah. I'm a man, at least I'm trying to be. But I'm looking for the other half of me. I'm looking for that true love to me. But I ain't gonna search for nothing desperately. Hell, I'm trying, trying. We haven't gone this direction with a musical selection in a while. No, it's been, it's definitely been a bit, but I just felt like it kind of warranted it. It made sense to, to me and my brain, and so I thought I would just run with it because, you know, why the hell not? It's Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. <laughs> so now, so is it, so he, so I've tasted these two wines before we started. By the way, it's bottom of the bottle. I'm Adam, he's Manny. Uh, that was quick. You know, that was very quick. It, we might as well just do it that way because we always forget and we might as well just get right into it. Um, hearing the, the, you know, the clip we just heard, the, obviously Hendrix is very, uh, it's saying that it's electric when he's playing electric guitar sounds, you know, like a, I don't have a better grasp of the English language, but it, but, are hard. but it pops and works. Had. Had. Words had. are had. Words are had. <laughs> uh, it, it, but it pops, right? And, you know, it, so to me, uh, you know, we have we have two Chilean wines today. You have a Sauvignon Blanc where it's just racy acidity and again, and, and it pops. And there's a spiciness on the red that again, just really, really pops, kind of like those, you know, the way Hendrix plays. So is that where we're going with this or am I completely off base or did you have a... You nailed it. Boom. Look at finally, it's taken a year <laughs> for this to happen. Um, you absolutely nailed it. You know, it. first of all, I just really like that song a lot. And and I kind of went back and forth of what I wanted to open with. Um, I had had the pleasure of having lunch actually with... Um, well, first of all, we are drinking today. We are in the wine, we are in Chile, and we are drinking the wines from Contuitora, and this is uh, one of their labels called Terumbo, which means which means terroir, um, and it is a, their kind of terroir selection. And we'll kind of explain in more depth as we go. But I had the the great honor to have lunch with a gentleman by the name of Tomas Vidal, who is the assistant winemaker for Don Melchor, which is Contuitora's super icon, amazing Cabernet blend from um, from Chile, and you know. There's such a drive to the wines that all I could think of was Led Zeppelin. Um, and, you know, these wines definitely are a little more uh, linear, but partly because of where they come from. And I wanted something that had a little more of a, of a, a chunky kind of kachuga sound to it. Sure. Um, and that is Stepping Stones from Jimi Hendrix, which also makes me think of the alluvial soils you find from the uh, Andes Mountains in Chile, and that's where I went with it. But no, these wines are electric. Yeah, I, I mean, just the the nose, the, the palate, everything about these wines just pops. Yeah. You, and it's so, I, I don't want to misquote Robert Paca, but I'm going to right now, possibly. <laughs> At one point, I think he had, when I, when, 10 years ago, when I was first introduced to this wine, the Sauvignon Blanc, uh, whoever was presenting it said that uh, Robert Baca called it his favorite Sauvignon Blanc in the world outside of Sunset. And 
I never actually looked it up to see if he said that, but I trust the person who was giving the presentation. That's a big, it's a big thing to say in front of a, a room of wine people and not be accurate, yeah. right? Um, but that's high praise. Absolutely. Uh, that's high praise. Whether or not you agree with how Robert Baca reviews his wines and his style of breads and so on, that's still a big thing to, for, for someone to like him to say. And it does, I mean, this wine is just, Again, use the word, it's electric. It, it, it's so vibrant on the palate. There's so much going on with this wine. It leaps out of the glass. I mean, you can, I can smell it from here. It's not even in my nose. It's, yeah. it's crazy what's going on with this wine right yeah. now. Yeah, and, and to me, what's really incredible about Chile is just really how far they've come, not just since, I mean, Contributor was founded in 1883 um, by Melchor uh, Contributoro, who was one of the founding members of the, of the winery. Not even since then, um, you know, we oftentimes talk about when we talk about the the wines of Europe being, uh, you know, how they've grown and developed. In Italy, they were producing wine for thousands of years. You know, the Romans were producing wine, and the Etruscans were making wine, and and so forth, and the Greeks. But Italy, for example, Spain didn't really have their Renaissance, as it were, for wine until really the eighties, the sixties yeah. for Italy. Maybe in Spain it was the really the eighties and seventies with like. Pasquera and um, Vega Cecilia, and then you see all this rebirth. In Chile, it really started in the 90s, because before that, it was known for basically jug wine, you know, um, very simple wine to kind of wash your food down with. It was very much that sharecropper model where you had your crops, you put everything together, and you just produce what you could to make money. Um, and that was the export market. I think actually Chile is two-thirds two of the wines are exported. And depending on the vintage, they are either fourth or fifth in the world in terms of, of oh, wow. export wine. And I think the seventh largest winemaker in the world. Um, but it really wasn't until the 90s when you saw a lot of producers like Conchuetora really stepping back a little bit. And I think embracing some of the lineage because the history of Chilean winemaking is pretty old. You know, it goes back to the... 16th century. Um, in On September 4th in 1544, Don Pedro Valdivia, who was a governor of Chile, wrote the King of Spain, King Charles IV, um, for vines. And they sent, they didn't send them from Spain, they actually sent them from Peru, uh, because Peru and, and California, California and Mexico were like really important viticulture um, industries for, for, Spain, for Spain, because all that wine was being exported back to Spain. And, but then it just became kind of um, happy with this very simple mission grape, which I think up until the 90s was the number one planted grape in Chile. Um, it's called Lestan de Petro, from, which came from the Canary Islands, I think, initially. But that's all they did, was just this kind of bulk wine. And then you saw with the uh, contributor's flagship wine, Don Melchor, which I think the first vintage was 1987, you saw a shift in this idea that, hey, we can actually make some stellar, stellar wines. Still, um, I want to say like affordable everyday wines, but still priced well for the quality that you get. Oh, I mean, if you, if you take Don Melchor, take the exact same wine, you put it in Napa, you put it in Bordeaux, and you price it, it's going to be a lot more expensive than mm -hmm. Tom Melchior's. Uh, and you know, there, there are, there's so many things to consider when you're looking at the price of the wine. So I'm not using that as a knock on Napa or, or Bordeaux for 
once I'm not knocking out one of those places. <laughs> but it, 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 just, it just is what it is. Chile does not have the, the issues that Napa and, and Bordeaux have when, when making those high-end wines. And they still make really pretty wines. Um, it, it's so interesting, because we have a comment yet today from, from Tourneau. Mm -hmm. And you know the, the idea of the sharecropper model, you're just kind of throwing everything together. This is why it's so interesting that we have a common year. So common year, people thought common year had basically gone extinct. And I'm gonna forget the name of the, the scientist. I, I might've forgot the last time we told this story when we did, I think we did Chile once before. He, you know, he was over, he was from France, he was in Chile. He was walking through a vineyard of Merlot and Merlot and common year look very, very similar. Just the leaves are a little different. And he saw a leaf, a, a leaf and went, that's, that's not Merlot. What vineyard he goes? No, yes, it is. No, no, it's not. Merlot doesn't have those leaves. Look, that's Merlot. <coughs> that's not. And they walk throughout the vineyard, and we're like, wait a minute. Half these vines aren't, aren't Merlot. Merlot's an early ripening grape. Cabernet is a late ripening grape. So if you're harvesting them both at the same time and blending them, you're going to have a either good Cabernet and not so good Merlot, and the wine's not going to be good, or good Merlot and not so good Cabernet and have the wine still not be good. So everyone thought the wine stunk. But it was really they were they were making a a poor man's field blend that just because they had no idea what they were doing. Yeah. So. And by the way, his name was Jean Michel Borosco. There we go. Because I just googled it, but also when I was coming down here, I googled it, and I kept on saying it over and over and over and over and over again. And I've done um, you know, presentations on Chilean wines and Carmenere, and I always I always have to. Google's name. It's like it will always be like eh, I knew it's John something. I've never remembered that There's, name in every presentation. I've yeah, done. I just I don't know why <laughs> I can't do it. Sorry. Always forget. Sorry, John. But yeah, no, absolutely true. You know, and um, you know, what, what, to me, what is so interesting about Chile is, you know, first of all, we have these values because the cost of living in 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 Chile is different, and you know, these wineries, I think, in particular, you know, these families have owned the estates for generation so they're not paying you know what you're paying for with napa is you are paying for packaging you are paying for obviously um you know very expensive grapes because the property value in napa valley is it's wicked expensive you know it costs a lot of money to buy your cabernet or buy your merlot and sometimes it costs you more money to grow it because you have the land you got to pay for and all this other stuff um but you're paying hedge fund managers, you're paying investors, you're paying all these different layers that in Chile, they don't have to because yeah. they, they own it outright. You know, these are, this is all estate fruit in both of these yeah. wines. Um, and, you know, read the regionality in Chile is, is really cool. So when we were at this luncheon with, with Tomas last week, you know, they've made the point of saying that one reason why we're seeing more and more iconic wines out of Chile is because it is, there is vintage variation. People thought every year was the same, but it's a pretty vast, I mean, it's 2,600 miles from north yeah. to south, but maybe five or 600 miles is where you're growing all the grapes. And in the north, there's um, uh, the Atacama Desert. You have Cuomo, you have the Central Valley where these wines come from. You go further south, it's like Bio Bio and Itata, and they all have different, uh, not just different soil types, different aspects of sunshine because you're going so far north and so far south. And when you are, you know, Chile is not a big country. Um, if you're on the mountains, it's only gonna take you a couple hours to get to the ocean, right? It's very different than the other side, Argentina yeah. would take you like days. Yeah. Um, and that 
climate variation between, I was going to say the Mediterranean, between the Pacific, and there's this little mountain, the coastal mountain range, and then the valley, and then the Andes, and it creates all these unique subclimates, um, which is, is pretty fantastic. And, and I think in the end of the day, it makes some very uh, expressive wines. Yeah, they're pretty. They're pretty. <laughs> they really, they, I just, they, they are. It's, I mean, the, I, I have a tough time with common air. I, we were talking about this before we, we started to record. Um, when common air is not well made, and like any, like every wine in the world, there's, there's great common air, there's average common air, and there's bad common air. When common air is not well made, to me, to me, it tastes like it's masquerading as something else. Because for me, one of the really distinct aspects of Caminier is that spiciness. Uh, and it's not spiciness from oak. It's, 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 it's the grape that's giving you the, you know, when we talk about uh, Burgundy and whatnot, we talk about sweet baking spices. And we sometimes we talk about Syrah, we talk about black pepper and, and, and so on. Um, Caminier, when it's it, in its truest form, just has these crazy this crazy spiciness on the nose and on the palate. It's unlike, I think, almost, I think it's, it's one of the most distinct red wines out there, if not the most distinct red wine, because of it when it's well made. Um, but when it's not, it's just, it, it's just kind of meh. It's just kind of blah. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't do, when you, when you lose that spiciness, there's just not much going on. Um, in this, I think I said it was like, there was a mound of like black pepper and cayenne pepper ground on the table and I felt like I just stuck my nose in the mound <laughs> and like buried my face in it because it was so intense. Um, and again, that, that's just, that's unique. Uh, you know, common air technically, well, there's more now, but it was one of the six original Bordeaux grapes that you could blend. It's the one we don't talk about, but they were yeah. allowed to do it. Um, and it's one of the reasons it was never a major component. One, it was how late of a ripener it was, but, but two, it, it's so overwhelming in its flavor profile when you add it. If you add too much, you're just, you're throwing it out. Yeah. Um, so it's really, it's really cool to see one that's balanced and it has that spiciness, but it also has the fruit. It has the, it has the backbone. It has the structure. It's really well made. Yeah. And I mean, it is so like Carbonier means crimson colored and it is, that's when you knew it was ripe when yeah. the leaves change color. Um, you know, th this is harvested in usually like mid-May, um, which is obviously we're South America, so we're six months earlier, but that would be like harvesting in November in California. Uh, and most wines in California are harvested in September, sometimes August, mid-August, you start harvesting certain, yeah. certain vineyards, certain Whites. areas. Yeah. Um, the Sauvignon Blanc, for example, was harvested, I think, in March. So that would be, what, six months back, probably yeah, September. Yeah. You know, but so let's talk Sauvignon Blanc for a second because I think it's it's a it's such a delicious wine. Um, I had this at at the luncheon with with uh, Thomas last week, and I was really struck by how you get this mineral quality that you find in in Sancerre. You know, yeah. um, you get some of that fruit you might find in New Zealand, but it's not as aggressive. It doesn't have that intense. Um, grapefruit. It doesn't smell like cat pee, you know, like even Good New Zealand Sauvignon Blancs typically can have that. You know, there's almost this like sorbet kind of mango kind of cool thing. Yeah. And 
Um, so this is coming from a, a single vineyard uh, called Los Boldos in Casablanca, which is right up on the coast. It's southeast, ex, ex, um, what expression? Is that the word I want to find? Exposure. Exposure, thank you. So we're actually not... <laughs> so you have the coast, you have the hills, and then you have on the other side where these vineyards are. And you have this current that comes in from Chile that it's called, or from the Pacific called the Humboldt Current that brings this cool, humid air and it gets blocked by some of these hills and other parts it seeps through and it goes into the valley and banks off of the Andes and it creates this relatively temperate climate that in, at least for the Reds, is very Bordelais in style and Sauvignon Blanc being a Bordeaux varietal historically. Um, you know, you get those cool grassy notes, you get that great minerality. I mean, it's yeah. super minerally driven. Like this on a hot day heading into summer, it just, you know, probably yeah. even, it's at, at a great temperature right now, but I would say, you know, a super hot day, even colder. And for a high-end wine to say you can chug it, you can you can chug that wine. Oh, yeah. Pretty, well, I mean, we pretty, pretty much are. I yeah. Mean, What's bottom of the bottle? Yeah, that's what we do. Well, we keep going back to it. I mean, we have all of them in front of us. We keep pouring ourselves more. Seven and longer to keep going through this, and it's not—that's not a knock on the common here. It's just this is so easy to drink and delicious. Yeah, it, it's really flinty. It's really bright. It's—it's it's got some viscosity to it. It's got some richness to it. Um, it's a serious wine that is really, really, really fun. One of my favorite things actually about about uh, Sauvignon Blanc from Chile. So my wife's grandparents, um, her grandmother was from France. Her my wife's great-grandfather, when he was younger, was a sommelier in Paris, but became a civil engineer. Um, my wife's grandfather was a diplomat. They would go to all these fancy wine dinners. He would show me the wine list of like having uh, Chateau Margaux 1900, um, the Feet 1900, on these menus. He kept all the all the dinner menus he would go to um, for like you know functions and events with these great wines. Their everyday go-to wine, and they would hate on California wines all the time, mm, hate I, on New World wines all the time. I would get along with them. Yeah, the, the, the wine they would always go to for lunch when we'd go visit them was Sauvignon Blanc from Contrator. It was the Frontera, which is like that $12, 1.5 liter yeah, bottle. Wine. And what I, what I really liked about that wine, it didn't have anywhere near the complexity. It was much fruitier. But the fruit wasn't aggressive. It was a lot of tropical fruit. There was a lot of mango to it. It was, it was really refreshing. And we were at the time, this is when they lived in Haiti. So we were, you know, in a more, well, Haiti's relatively dry because of deforestation, but the surrounding areas are tropical. But um, it was such a refreshing wine. And I just thought to myself, that is a great wine, like what I call wedding wines. The wines that, you know, they're not, um, they're not overly powerful. They're not expensive. They're just good affordable wines that you can drink. It shouldn't take away from everything or anything. And I feel like that's what weddings should be. Just a good wine that makes you want to get up and do the, the chicken dance, you know, or the Macarena. <laughs> that's what a wedding's about. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, so the, the, the whole backstory, the history of like where these grapes came from, where they decided to plant them. Um, so I was talking earlier about Don Pedro Valdivia in September 4th, for 1544, that's when he wrote the letter to uh, King Charles of Spain. And that is the that is the National Wine Day. And at that point, it was really just this Pais grape 
But when Phylloxera happened and all the vines died in Bordeaux, and well, not all, but a lot of them died in Bordeaux, including Carmenier, um, before that happened, there was an influx of French vines coming in. And, uh, you know, yeah, I forgot where I was going with that. I'll figure it out. It's okay. Yeah, I'll figure it out then. Right. Uh, that's right. It doesn't but matter. It, but it, it, it makes, <laughs> historically, it makes sense to, to do this. So, I mean, when we, we take for granted the modern world right now, right? Um, in, in that time, we did not have the Panama Canal. Um, and Chile is on the other side of, of South America. So if you if you're coming from Span, Span, Spain, <laughs> France, Italy, where's the hard, everyone? Where's the hard? So if you're coming from that and, and you you're settling in Chile and you want these types of wines, well, you're either going to have to have a boat sail all the way around South America, or you can bring the vine with you and and start to plant. It's the same thing with why. You know, uh, Chile's wines might not have been exported, and they might not have the the, the same focus on markets and whatnot. Because it was a pain to get wine from Chile to the rest of the world until you know the the, the modern world. So the, it's not just that you know that they were behind or backwards or whatever we want to say, but logistically, until the modern world came about, it was very difficult to get Chilean wine every place else. Yeah. So they were just making. You know, it's like. It's like being in Italy, you know, the you know the, the local wine, right? When you go there and you plop down, everyone's like, oh, I was in Italy. They, they plopped this jug on the table. I have no idea what it was, but it was the best one I ever had. It was the best one you ever had because you were in Italy and it was sunset and it was gorgeous and you weren't thinking about what you were drinking. That's what was the best one you yeah. ever had. Um, but it's, it's the same thing. The wine that you're making to consume every day that you're having locally is, you know, it, it, it is more simple. And that's because you're making, it's for everyday consumption and whatnot. That's not what you're making to export. Once you start to do that, your your view changes. And that didn't, again, until it became kind of easier to get Chilean wine out into the to the rest of the world, you know, you didn't have to you didn't have these concerns. But once that happened, then you can start going, okay, how do we how do we because everyone has those those local wines that are easy to drink and enjoyable and refreshing and so on. So how do you make yourself different and distinct? It's this tier. Exactly. So, you know, and, and I would say like even the 19th century when they started really uh, working with, with in particular these, these wines from Bordeaux, which to me the climate is, is a little closer to Bordeaux. It's, it's more of a temperate climate. Napa Valley is, is not a temperate climate. You have the Maya Camas mountain range, which really creates that rain shadow that, you know, um, you get intense sunshine. Um, that's not like Bordeaux. You know, if you were to take a, a straight, I mean, I know we're doing Carm, but if we were taking a straight Napa cab and we had that with an, uh, a majority Napa, uh, Bordeaux Cabernet, that drinker that's not used to Bordeaux, they're not really going to know what that is. Um, and, and it could be 100% Merlot, it could be 100% cab, which you never see in, in Bordeaux, 100% cab, but they would feel the same to that person because of the terroir. What I think is really cool about Chile is that you really have a good mixture. It is it can be relatively dry here. Um, you do have a mixture of that California fruit, but you get it's a little more restrained. So you get that elegance yeah. you find in the old world in in, in Europe. You get that um, high acid. The wines feel fresher. Uh, they're not overly extracted. You know, this is fourteen and a half percent alcohol. There are a lot of Napa cabs that are hitting. 15, 5, 16%. Sure. We're going to taste some later on today that I'm sure we'll see at that, at yeah. that level. Um, which means you can have that 
that second, that third glass, which, you know, I had this bottle uh, over the weekend, actually, when it was really hot, um, when it was like 90 degrees, because I was grilling up a bunch of food, and I honestly I threw it in the freezer, and it was ice cold, uh, but it was delicious, because it wasn't, it wasn't too heavy, you know. But then, you know, there was that varietal, that Carmenere that they thought was Merlot, and, yeah. and then what happened with, what really helped elevate the winemaking in Chile, you know, and I talked about this when we did our episode on Phylloxera, that there, there is a positive to it. Um, it forced a lot of French winemakers, a lot of winemakers from Bordeaux to leave, and a lot of them went to places like Rioja and Riviera del Duero, and they came to the New World, and a lot of them came to Argentina and in Chile, and they brought that winemaking technique with them. Sure. You know, although there's a lot of Italian uh, families here in Chile, and obviously Spanish families in Chile, it was the French that really kind of invested into this area and showed a lot of these winemakers how to make, like Contributora, how to make world-class wines. Yeah. And then, you know, but then the industry changes. And uh, as you mentioned, it wasn't about, um, it was just having that local wine, but then they became known for having, as markets wanted more wine and more people started drinking wine, like in the United States, okay, well, we're just gonna send them whatever the consumers want. And then there's a hundred years later that rebirth with really with Dom Melchor yeah. um, that let's make a serious single vineyard wine. And both of these wines are single vineyard um, and coming from a specific plots, which I think is really cool because now we're in the, the whole idea of the Tourneur line is that it is terroir base. And so, you know, the expression of the soil of the sunlight is really important because you're only going to get that. It's almost Burgundian. You're almost can, you're only going to get that here. And this wine, this grape is going to be different than not just the next vineyard, but the next part of the vineyard. So the vineyard is, yeah. is uh, called Paomo, and it's in a region called Paomo in the Cochopal Valley. But we are also heading to the coastal range, so we are a little cooler in climate, which is why we're harvesting here. I mean, this vintage day was harvested May 15th, was the, I think the last date of harvest in 2018. That's a long time for those yeah. grapes to be sitting on that vine. It's, it's really cool for, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm at a loss for words now. I've lost it because words are hot. Um, but, but really, the, it's not just me good. <clears throat> why that's so cool with, with Kamenia, in my opinion. Walk down the street, talk to 100 people, talk to 1,000 people, maybe even more than that, and ask them to name their go-to red if they have one. If you get more than one person that says common here, I will be amazed. You just won't. Um, it's just, it's not in demand the way the other varietals are, or the way some blends are. And so to put this much effort <coughs> and care into making a single plot of common here to show what Chile can do, to show what um, you know, Concha y Toro can do with their winemaking and, and that you can elevate this grape, it's really special. Um, you, it, it's interesting, we, you know, Manny said a couple times on the podcast, that we don't know whether or not biodynamics actually does anything, right? Like maybe it does, seems to, but he's never had a biodynamically farmed wine where he was like, that sucks. Yeah, because the, there's so much care that goes into making it that to follow those steps that it, it the fruit almost always winds up being good just by 
by the, the effort that has to go in. To me, it, it's, if you're gonna put this much effort into making a common year, it's gonna be spectacular at every single time. Exactly. Uh, and it's, and it's, there aren't a lot of common years at this price point and it, it shows what other, those off varietals can do and why you should try it and why you should pick one up because it's, it's a really cool wine that you wouldn't think to grab, but it's, it's special and you would enjoy it. Yeah. And you know what I find with um, people that really gravitate, like the consumer that really gravitates towards Carmenere, I was actually at a, this really cool cocktail bar in, in Hudson, Mass, called Greater Than Less Than. I was tasting with uh, my friend Alan, who's the, the buyer there. And you know, they do amazing cocktails and they, their wine program is funky. Um, you know, they, they pour Sauvignon from the Jura or they'll find like some weird wacky grapes and you know, they'll pour that and we were tasting this and he was like, there's like this coffee thing that's going on. And like, yeah, it's like coffee and, or it's like espresso bean with chocolate and uh, a little bit of like cream to it and a hint of spice, but then you get like this, uh, it's sometimes Carmenere when it's not done well or when it's underripe, it's super green, yeah. but also can be really smoky and really, you know, sometimes rubbery if it's not done right. Sure. And they recognize that, so the winemaker, um, he really kind of, or they have someone that really just specializes with Carmenere because they recognize that this is a grape that is so unique and then if it's done just to throw out a bunch of wine, yeah. it's usually going to be meh, meh, or, or, or I think difficult because it's such a distinct aroma to it, but when you care for it, you know, it is unique. It is, um, I think they're really beautiful. Uh, there is a slight a, a, a bitterness from the tannins, but you get that bright fruit fresh, or that, that bright, ripe fresh fruit that works well with that bitterness. It creates a balance, almost like bittersweet chocolate does. Yeah. And, you know, you find that in Carmenere, but then there's a little bit of tobacco. There's a little bit of a, a cologne to it. Um, it is floral. In tobacco, not in an unpleasant way. No. It's, uh, that's one of those notes that I find when you say tobacco, people go like, yeah. Like, I don't, want, I, I don't like cigarettes or cigars. I don't want to, it's no. Yeah, it's not someone blowing smoke in your, yeah. <laughs> in your face. I mean, if you, so like, if you ever taste a wine and you're like, oh my God, that's a Marlboro Red, that wine has smoke taint. You're, <laughs> you know, that, that, that's not what we mean by tobacco. It's just, um, again, just the, the bitterness you said, it's, it's not, it's not the bitterness of like biting into a, an olive you just picked off the vine that hasn't been, you know, shelled or whatever it is. Oh, yeah, yeah it's not that, that type of thing. I remember when um, I had everyone do that in Argentina? Yes, I do. Yeah. Um, it's, it's the pleasant bitterness that you get in a really good, you know, black coffee or black espresso or, again, a really nice dark chocolate. It's, it's pleasant. Um, but you, you, you just, I want to go back. You just said the green thing. And we're talking about Chile, and so I think we should we should talk about this at least for a moment. The big knock on Chilean wines across the board, you normally hear it in reds, but across the board, is I feel like I'm biting into a green pepper. Pierzines. So these do not have that green pepper flavor profile mm -hmm. to them. And Depending on what you're drinking, and the, the, the knock is, you know, depending on the wine, the vintage, and so on, you never know when you're going to get it. And so, that, so 
even people who really like wine, who really like Chilean wine, don't always go for it because I don't want to be drinking a green pepper tonight. I know why I think that, that that's there. What, what's your, why do you think the green pepper phenomenon is going on in the... I think it's, I think it's a, a poor vineyard management. Um, I think it, there are people that are still stuck in this mindset of mass-produced wines to make you know, as much money as you possibly can, as quickly as you can. Um, you know, you know, I think that in, in certain ways, that kind of smoky element is just part of the, the terroir of Chile. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but I think that really was born from people just a, a lack of care of, or of interest of producing something that was, I think, of quality. And, you know, you've seen that kind of shift that, you know, really within the last 20 years, 30 years of Chile, even, you know, so Contributor, I mean, they have everywhere from the jug wine quality, or those jug wine wines that are like good wedding wines like Frontera that are just easy to drink. And I wish I could go back to the Sublock, which just was, I was really impressed with how much I enjoyed that wine. That was like, we would finish a 1-5 at lunch, you know. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, then you go to the next level up the Grand Reserva or the Marcas de Casa Concha, which is that kind of mid-tier, you know, they're still able to, to isolate and, and kind of remove those, those, that funk that you see with, I think, poorly made wine. Yeah. And then you get the nice ripe fruit, but once again, you get acid, you get minerality, you get texture. Um, yeah, I don't know if that answers you. Yeah, no, I, so I do, so the, the, it's, the, you know, again, I said this earlier, there's, no matter where you are in the world, no matter what varietal you're doing, there's really bad grapes, there's average grapes, there's good grapes, there's great grapes, there's 100 point amazing grapes. And, you know, if you're just harvesting everything and you're not <coughs> sorting and you're throwing it to a vat and it's all blending together and you have a lot of under-ripened grapes or whatnot or, or you know, because I, I, when I, I've always found it to be, I find the wines to be slightly underripe when I have those two across the board, not just, um, not just the green pepper component. But when you're, when you're not taking that care, yeah, you get, you, you, you get some of those flavors. And it's, to me, it, it, it's unique, for whatever reason, it is unique to Chile in those underripened wines. I don't think we see them as much from California um, because California always, when they're approaching a vintage cautiously, they would always be slightly overripe yep. than underripe. Because for an overripened flavor, you'll be fruity, you might be a little raisinated, but people like sweet. They say they don't like sweet, but yet Moscato was the fastest growing grape of the last two years when everybody was at home. So people <laughs> like sweet. Um, they'd rather err on that side to, to be cautious and then try and you know play with blending in the winery to fix it as opposed to you know, being underripe, because those underripened flavors, once they're there, you can't pull them out. You, you know, you, you can try to blend to subdue them, but those strong underripe flavors, once they're there, they are there. Yeah. And then you have to make the conscious choice, do I blend with this wine or do I not? Or is it too late and I've already, you know, I blended everything and I can't. Um, so, and it's interesting because before you were saying, you know, climate-wise, we're more like Bordeaux. We are cooler mm -hmm. in climate than, than Napa and some of the other, you know, California regions. So you are going to have more of those slightly under ripened flavors depending on where you are. 
So it's again, it's finding those people that put that <clears throat> extra care into the bottle, yeah. that are sorting those grapes, that are paying attention, and and, and, and patient in the yeah. in the, the harvest. True. You know, not yet, not yet, not yet. You know, not quite yet. And and that is a risk because you know you've, it seems like it's great, but maybe the phenolics aren't quite there, mm -hmm. or um, you know the, the the skins aren't quite mature enough, or the, maybe the seeds are just slightly too green. And, and the bricks, the sugar levels haven't quite developed where you want them to, but it's almost across the board. In every country, harvest time is such a volatile time because you have hail. Yep. And when it falls in towards going towards winter, and you know that if you lose your, if you wait one extra day, and we talked about this in Burgundy, you wait one extra day and there's hail, you have the potential of losing almost everything yeah and so i think that a lot of people just erred on the side of caution historically like you know we're just gonna do what we do we're gonna make our wines and without it's not that they don't care or didn't care they, they prioritize prioritize i think something else and now we're starting to see um producers or within the last world really i think Domature was 87 so that would 40 something years producers you know, 10, 20 years after Italy was doing it, at the same time Spain was doing it, started prioritizing quality. Yeah. Because those jug wines will always have a market, but let's also show what else we can do. And, you know, and I think we were talking about this, you know, earlier the other day, like Chile's kind of lacked that midpoint. Sure. Um, it's always been jug wine, and then we had these super premium wines, uh, Carmen de Boma, which is the same vineyard that this wine comes from. Um, but from the entire vineyard, uh, Don Melchor, there's a ton of other producers, um, you know, that are great producers at Chile that have these wines. But that kind of like $45, $50 bottle didn't really exist. Sure. You know, and I mean, just think about in terms of quality, what you get, we were talking about with Don Melchor at, the, at that price, you know, which retail around 130, 150 bucks, depending on where you buy it. Um, you know, the flagship wines from Dariush or from Osome sure. uh, or, you know, from Heidi Barrett, you're in a different stratosphere. And, and, you know, they're all different wines, but like when we're looking at the top tier here or in Bordeaux, you're looking at several hundred dollars. Yeah. Um, but even here, that 50, 45, $50 range, I mean, the quality one that you get, it's, it's pretty fantastic. And I, one thing I was, one person that was at the lunch was uh, Jonathan Aesop, who's the director of the um, Boston Wine School. And we were talking about the cost of, of Dom Melchor in particular, but I think this applies to it quite well. You know, what is the, when do you celebrate with those wines? And my point was Wednesday, because we celebrate Wednesdays, right? right. Um, I like Tuesdays, you like Wednesdays. Yeah, yeah, well, someday, no you know, some, so Sunday. I had to get there at some point. I like Humpty Eve. Yeah, it's, <laughs> but you know, he, he brought this great point. He's like, listen, you know, the one way to also sell these or to talk about these wines, for those people that go out to dinner and they go to the restaurant in, in Boston and they're paying too much for that wine, they usually pay $10 for at the store, they pay 15 bucks for a glass. Two friends go out, they each have two glasses. They just spent 60 bucks on a wine they pay $10 for almost all the time. Um, you know, why not have something at your house? You know, have a barbecue. Hey, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm going to a barbecue. I'm gonna bring a bottle of this wine. I'm gonna splurge a little bit. Instead of bringing two bottles for 25, I'm gonna bring one special bottle. Sure. You know, and share it with people. Um, 
you know, and then you start telling the story, especially like if you're really into this stuff and you start talking the story of Carmen Yer, um, or, you know, the, the history of Chilean winemaking, it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah, it, it, it is. And, you know, talking about the quality and, and having this tier and whatnot, uh, when we're talking about the Parazine thing, that wasn't to bash anyone who was making those wines. It's, words aren't just high, growing grapes is high too. I don't, mm-hmm. you know, we, we don't, it's where we're facing the Ronda right there's a whiteboard in this room I would go up and use it if, if, <laughs> if I could but if you think of the grape ripening as a graph with with different lines right so sugar sugar rises as we go through the, the ripening process right acid levels actually come down tannins go up as the as the grape uh, ripens Phenolics go up, your flavor profiles right as the grape ripens. So you have these, you know, alcohol goes up as the grape ripens. Um, you have these very different attributes that create the balance of the wine that are, you know, that are increasing or decreasing as the grape ripens. But they all do it at their own pace, at their own level. And you were trying to pick them when they are all kind of crossing at the same time. That's ideally when you want to pick everything, right? That, that's where you get your balance. They're all kind of there. And that's, that's an oversimplification of what's going on. But, uh, but that's what you want. And again, depending on the heat, the sunlight, the, you know, did it rain, all these other things that are going on. Another thing too is did the grape swell because it rained, and then you have more water. So how much water? So there's all these di- all these things go into it, and you're trying to pick when these things are most harmonious to get the best possible wine. It's really friggin' hard to do, yep. especially if you're not in one of these areas where the weather is perfect for what you're yep. trying to do. So that's the other piece that I think is really cool and special about these wines is is one, it's always hard to do it. It's always hot. I don't care where you are in the world. It's always hard to, to do that. Um, so to take the care to try and make it happen is, is spectacular. But also, it's when it doesn't happen perfectly, again, that it, that's not a knock. It's really hard to do. And not everyone has the luxuries that, you know, Country Door has been doing this for several hundred years, right? Yeah. They, they, they have luxuries not everyone has. So it is... It's something where it makes these special, but it doesn't mean that the other ones are, are bad per se. It's more that it just, it's really hard to do. Um, so we should appreciate like every level of what we're doing because there's a wine for everyone. Um, and, and I think that when you, when you have a better understanding of how the grape just kind of ripens. And again, again, like you hear this, oh, we harvest at night. Why do you harvest at night? Well, the acid level's high. So if you're two hours late, the acid's gonna be thrown off. Like this, this is what they actually <laughs> talk about. Yep. Like we can't harvest during the, you know, during the day because the acid level will drop. And it, it's, there's that level of care that I think when you, when you view it that way, just, okay, like it's, these wines are good. I like these, but that's what makes these wines special is that extra level of care and attention to find that harmonious spot and pick at the right time and, yep. and so on. We don't think of it that way. We just go, oh, you just wait, you know, do the grapes look ripe enough and you pluck them? Well, we'll, we'll know. It's, no, it's, 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 it's all it's, these disparate things that have to be brought together into one. So. Exactly. And, you know, what I think is really cool about these 
these wines and Chile in general is that they really are you know, some stepping stones into some amazing, beautiful, iconic wines. And, um, and this as thing has gotten so much better over the, the hour it's been open. Oh my God. Yeah, it's, as it opens, as it develops, it's just the fruit really starts to come out. And definitely a wine to decant um, and definitely a wine to, to enjoy. I'm getting like, um, it's almost like uh, at right now that last sip was like blueberries that were dunked in like dark chocolate. Oh, nice. Awesome. That's really tasty. I was not expecting <clears throat> that at all. The spiciness is kind of, it's still there, but it's not, it's not like putting my nose and, you know, a mound of it on the table anymore. It's, it's just a different layer of, yeah. of flavor, which is really And that's, cool. that's like, I think one of the coolest things to see, not just the evolution of Chile in, in terms of its history and in terms of its winemaking history, but to actually sit with a high quality wine and watch it evolve as you drink it, it's pretty rad. Yeah, it's awesome. Well, we actually have to go to a taste, another tasting. We have to work now. We have to work now. So until next time, a little bit of Jimi Hendrix. Cheers, everyone. Cheers. Always listen to Jimi Hendrix. Ooh, wait! Ah, uh, show got the blues this morning, baby. Yeah, and I'm here to tell you about it. So you might as well pick up on it. Yeah,